0: Please join us on January 1st for a Sober Sisters Talk Zoom SLAA Women's Only Meeting at 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. For more information and to get details of the meeting, please email us at sober sisters talk at gmail.com. Happy New Year! You know, this woman is just a really, really good friend of mine. Um, I'm really proud of her sobriety, her dedication to her program, her commitment to service, to helping others, um, her willingness, you know, I, I love having women in my life that I can work with, that I can say, hey, you know, have you looked at this? You know, could it be this? And that I can be really honest and forthright. And she's definitely one of them. And she's a bright spot in my life as well. We usually record on Fridays before, and we did not, so I'm having a little bit of withdrawal. But um, So you got the recorder on? All right. Go ahead. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. My name is MG, and I'm a sex and love addict. And uh, Elizabeth, if you could give me a timer warning after 40 minutes. I think I'll be done by then, but if you just give me a timer warning, I'd appreciate it. So, uh, I have been really, for some reason, a little bit scared to tell my story and have it be recorded on the podcast. And so, I'm going to be very general. And, you know, one of the things I do, not all the time, but if I don't know someone uh, and I start working with them in a sponsor sponsee relationship, I do tell my story and I get into a little bit more detail. But, you know, the format, you know, based on AA is what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And so typically my story, you know, 90% of it was, you know, uh, what it was like. And so I'm going to really try to flip that because I think it's the most important thing is to talk about like what it's like now. Like, you know, the the piece of it in the middle, like, you know, the transformation and then then, uh, at the end, you know, what it's like now because... You know, that's where, for me, the gold lies, you know. I once had a therapist that used to talk about, you know, shadow and golden based on the Jungian archetypes. Uh, And, um, you know, for a lot of my life, I've lived in shadow. And so, you know, I want to talk about, like, the golden part of my life. But my story begins in Alabama. And someone once said, where are you from in Alabama? And I was like, does it matter, you know? And uh, not that I'm putting Alabama down, you know, I love that place, it's very beautiful, but you know, it's you know similar uh, all over the state. But I was uh, raised in Alabama and uh, my story really begins, like not only with my mother, but with my grandparents on both sides. And my mother and father were products of home where there was abandonment and I believe uh, love addiction and uh, a lot of dysfunction. So when my parents married, my mother was 19 years younger than my father because that was part of her wounding was having a father who abandoned her when she was 18 months old. And my father, his mother died when he was 9, and his father died when he was 11. So he was an orphan when he uh, was growing up, and he lived with his um Uh, sister's family, and, uh, you know, he married a woman that he was very much in love with, and he was born in 1909, so he was, my dad was an old guy when I was born, Um, and he was in love with this woman, and he was in the military in World War II, and he got shipped off to Hawaii, and her family didn't like my father because he was poor, so they managed to get her divorced, So my father came back from the war, just, you know, really tragically upset. And my mother was a beautiful young woman. And, uh, you know, she saw my father. And because of her wounding around her father leaving, you know, they connected. And I feel like it was definitely a, a, a relationship of passion and i believe my mother loved my father desperately but my father still had that wound from his first wife and so i don't think he really loved her like she wanted to be loved she was an only child and she was um always wanted a big family because she had been raised by her grandparents and uh so when she got married, she said, I want four girls and four boys. And so she said, I got my girls, but she only got one of her boys. So I was the baby out of five kids. And you know, what that looked for me, looked like for me as a child is that I always had hand-me-downs. I was always like, you know, just like a, like they say, a third wheel. I was the fifth wheel. And Uh, And I tried to, you know, if I'd been feeling better, I wanted to put together like a photo montage and I didn't get a chance to do that. But in pictures of me when I was a little girl, it was like I was always in my pajamas because like no one dressed me because my mother was, you know, working two jobs. My father was working and like all these kids running around. So I was really neglected as a child. And some of the stories that my mother told me when I was growing up was that Uh, as a result of my conception, I had ruined my parents' marriage, basically. That my uh, father didn't want to have any kids because he had this whole passel of kids. And, um, you know, she manipulated him into having sex with her. And she knew she was, you know, ready to conceive. And so she got pregnant. And so this is like one of the stories I heard growing up that... uh, my father was so mad at her that he kicked her out of his bed, and so they split. And in their marriage, they had two separate bedrooms, and they never had sex again after, after the, my conception. So, you know, I grew up with this weird sense of, like, I could destroy marriages, you know? It was very weird. And, uh, and I felt this responsibility, like this guilt, you know, just by me being born. And I remember I had a therapist tell me one time, that's fucked up when a parent tells you that kind of shit, you know? And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe it is. And it was part of my mother's manipulation to try to get people to be on her side, you know, not on my father's side. My father, you know, was an older guy when I was born. He was like 59 or something. I never knew him without gray hair. He was an old guy. And uh, he was super quiet. He would sit back in his bedroom and he had a TV back there and he would just smoke cigarettes and watch TV. So he was emotionally unavailable. And so that became part of uh, the piece of the qualifier that I am attracted to. You know, someone who, you know, is an addict, someone who just is really quiet. At the same time, you know, I'm always attracted to people who can be charming, but also like they can turn it on and turn it off. So, you know, growing up in my house, I didn't know that it was weird that parents lived in separate bedrooms. I thought that was the way it was. And I can remember going over to my girlfriend's Jackie's house and she's showing me the rooms and she shows me her parents' bedroom. And she's like, yeah, that's where they sleep. And I'm like, together? Together? Oh, that's weird. She goes, your parents don't sleep together? I'm like, no, they got separate bedrooms. So, you know, that was part of like how it began uh, in my childhood. And I can remember that because I felt so neglected and because I felt like you know, uh, and my mother was a very corporal punishment person, you know, switches, slapping, spanking. My father, not so much, but, you know, he did beat me one time with a belt so bad that my legs were bleeding. So, you know, that was just the way it was during that time. And, uh, And I made it through, but I can remember when I was 14 years old, you know, I had a friend in high school that, you know, wanted to get high and smoking marijuana. I was born in a very A dry county in Alabama, you know, uh, Baptist. I mean, it was like you don't drink, but you can smoke dope. It was easier to get dope than it was to get booze. So I remember, you know, getting high when I was 14. And, you know, I sucked my thumb until I was 10. So I really had only a four-year period that I didn't have, like, some addiction. And so I started smoking pot and then, you know, drinking a little bit when I could. But mainly it was smoking dope. And then, you know, I was like, boy, crazy. And I had two guy friends that were older than me, and they were in the band, and I was in the band, and, you know, I became obsessed with this guy, Scott. And so, you know, it was like it it, it started out, and it, like, went from there. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on, like, the men and the acting out. It's not a drunk log But I just want to say that, you know, it was just like I could I mean, we can do that. Right. We can list one guy after another. And um, when I was about uh, 19 years old, I was in college and, uh, you know, a piece of my story is I, I met a guy and he wanted to have sex. And I really I was like love addicted to him and I didn't set boundaries around Uh, protection. And so I got pregnant with this guy. And I don't regret having an abortion. But what I regret was, I didn't have the strength or the boundaries to say no to this guy. You know, I mean, that, that was a, a, a huge piece of this for me. You know, certainly nobody, you know, was like, you know, cavalier about having to have an abortion. And I certainly wasn't, it was a devastating thing to have happen. But you know, I drug my girlfriend into it, you know, I, uh, you know, have to, I owe her a huge amends, you know, she was a bad check writer, and we were out of state, I had to go to Atlanta, and, uh, you know, she was thrown in jail with a felony for writing checks across state lines, and, you know, and it was a horrible situation in her life, so, you know, It began to be serious and bad, even when I was 19, where it was like my love addiction affected all these people. And, you know, I didn't even see any of this until I started working the steps. So, you know, that was my first sort of like, uh, you know, uh, big wounding around it. And as a result of that in college and my father dying, I joined the military and I went into the Air Force when, when I was 19. And um, I got stationed overseas and I'm telling you ladies, you know, it's like when you join up in the military and you come on base, it's like here's a carton of cigarettes and here's like, you know, a bottle of Jack Daniels. I mean, liquor was so cheap and cigarettes were so cheap. Everybody drank, everybody smoked and I couldn't smoke pot when I was in the Air Force in England. So I, uh, you know, started drinking and that's when I began to drink alcoholically. And I met this guy and fell in love with this guy. And he was a major alcoholic. And, you know, I began to drink alcoholically with him because, you know, like we'd go to the pub and he'd have a pint and I'd have a half pint. And that way I could kind of stay with him. And um, in the Air Force, if you have like a, it's called an alcohol-related incident. So if you're on base, you have to kind of be cool and have a little bit of decorum. But I remember us walking home from the club so many times and me falling so hard that my contacts popped out of my eyes. And, you know, and I was like, you know, cuckoo for this guy. So I was like wanting to be cool like him and drink like him. And uh, I was really in love with him. And uh, when I was ready to re-up for the Air Force, You know, I'd been stationed elsewhere, and I was like, I said to him, you know, should should I re-up, or should I get out? He was like, get out, definitely. And I thought he was saying that so when I got out that I could go and be with him, but he was sick of the Air Force. He hated it, and he was just saying to me, no, you don't want to stay in this place. So, you know, once again, that's part of my love addiction where I don't get clarity. I just, you know, make up a bunch of shit about what someone has said to me. So... I didn't re-up for the Air Force, and I got out of the Air Force, and I went to go live with him. Now, when I went to go live with him, he was real clear. He said, listen, we're not a couple. You know, uh, I've got kids, and I don't want to be a couple. So if you want to come stay with me, you can. And so I was like, okay. I'm like, but are are we still going to have sex? And he goes, oh, well, maybe. You know, so another habit of mine is I get into these ambiguous sort of, sort of relationships. So, you know, I went to stay with him and I was actually like sharing a bedroom with his daughter. Like she had a bed, I had a bed, but I was like, how are we going to have sex? And, and so I set myself up in his garage. So it's like one of my, you know, big humiliations that I lived in this man's garage And I can remember that, you know, he came into the garage one night and he was like, he said, I'm here to give you your fix. You know, and so that's why for me, it was about the sex and the love. It was like the love addiction, you know, drove me and the sex addiction kept me in it. It was, you know, this, I was so grateful when I found out about this program because I was like, yes, that's it. So... After everything went south with him, you know, things did end up poorly with him. Um, you know, I moved to Houston in nineteen eighty nine, but I had a suicide attempt the night before. He had got the station back in England and I was still in his house and he uh I was getting it ready for the realtor because he was going to rent it out, and um, he was real mad with me, and he called me on the phone, and I had told him, I said, you know, I can't stay in your house anymore. I've gotten a realtor, but I'm leaving, and you know, he said all these mean things to me, and he goes, I knew I never should have trusted you, blah, 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 and so I had a, um, you know, it was a At the time, I didn't think it was that big a deal. I was going to kill myself by cleaning products, right? It was such an Al-Anon, you know, thing. I was going to put like a Clorox in the bathtub and then a bunch of ammonia and I was going to breathe this stuff in and then, you know, be found like, you know, falling out. It was very dramatic. And I poured the Clorox in the bathtub and then I had the ammonia and I was like thinking I don't know if this is going to be enough ammonia and then something said you know just go get high so you know where we were living at that time was in North Florida near Pensacola and the marijuana there was great and so I called some friends and I'm like hey I really need to get high you know I didn't say I was getting ready to you know try to kill myself by you know mustard gas basically is what I was making and uh, so I went over there and I got high and then the next day I packed all my stuff and I moved to Houston Texas and that was December 12th 1989 so that was like a big point. And I remember again, like talking about this in therapy, you know, my therapist said, you know, suicide has three components, the ideation, the plan and the carry through. And so I had the ideation, I had the plan and I was halfway through the carry through. So she really wanted me to understand that that was like a serious thing. So you know, for me, it was just about like I couldn't live without this guy. That's what I kept saying. I was driving away from him, and I said, I can't believe I'm leaving him. You know that I'm leaving this, you know, pseudo non-relationship. It wasn't even a relationship. You know, how could I end something that wasn't even existing? So I got to Houston and I moved in with my uh, childhood friend Barrett. And uh, I known Barrett was the first person I got high with when I was 14. And uh, I got to his house and I said, listen, I I really need to get high. Do you have any, any marijuana? Do you have a joint? He says, no, I'm sober. And I was like, you mean like what, like right now? Like he goes, no, no. I'm like not drinking at all. And I'm like, I I was like, he was a methamphetamine junkie. And I was like, I was like, what? I don't understand what you're doing. And um, so And I said, is Peter around? That's our other friend. And I knew Peter wasn't going to get sober. So I went and talked to Peter. I'm like, what's up with Barrett? He said, oh, he's sober now. I'm like, what is that about? He was like, I don't know. He's going to these meetings. And so, uh, you know, Barrett, like, you know, he 12-stepped me. And um, he uh, got me into counseling at the Montrose Counseling Center. And I knew I needed counseling because I was so distraught over this guy from the Air Force. And so I went to to this counseling center, and they asked me a whole bunch of questions, you know, about drugs. Have I done cocaine? Yes. You know, uh, and I just chronicled, like, I loved whippets. I loved nitrous oxide. You know, I used to do those a lot. I didn't do a lot of cocaine because I felt like it was too addictive, you know. Uh, and I love marijuana, and uh, so they said, okay, will you qualify, and I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, this is a drug treatment program. I was like, oh, okay, and I started individual therapy twice a week and group therapy, and uh, so they said, but you got to take a vow of uh, sobriety, so uh, I didn't think that I had a problem with drugs or alcohol, but I wanted the program, so I said, okay, so March 3rd, 1990 is my sobriety day. And you know, I didn't go to my first AA meeting until I was about six months sober. And you know, part of my story is I feel like sobriety is the foundation for me. And whether or not I'm an alcoholic is a moot point because I have zero plans on ever drinking or doing drugs again. And I feel like it's essential for my recovery and sex and love addiction that I do remain uh, clear-minded and I remain sober. And, uh, and so, you know, and I've come to like, believe that, that, you know, a lot of people like, I remember saying in group, I said, you know, I don't have a problem with drugs and alcohol, I have a problem with men. And they were like, uh, you're in a drug treatment program. And so people put on me what my story was. So I would go to a lot of AA meetings, but I never felt comfortable and never felt part of. Uh, and because I never was tempted once I was able to lay it down that one of my AA friends said oh, that was, you know, God removing it from you. And I'm like, okay, okay, if you will. But, you know, I got sober from drugs and alcohol, and, you know, my life improved. I mean, just getting sober from drugs and alcohol, I was able to go back to college, and I got my degree from the University of Houston in psychology in 1993. And I had, you know, uh, I didn't date a lot and uh, because I was like fearful of the men, and you know I'll just go back in time a little bit when I was in the Air Force, I got married, and I was married to this guy for nine months, and he doesn't he wasn't even like I didn't even love him, but he said, "I love you enough for me," and I thought, well, I'll try that, you know, so even though I was married, it wasn't like a big of a deal in terms of like the relationships that I had, so you know, I wasn't dating anyone. And then I started working for this little company called Enron, you might've heard of it. And uh, and I met a guy there and uh, I'm gonna call him Mr. T. And uh, I just liked this guy, Mr. T. And he was a major pothead, and, uh, but I liked him. And at that point in my life, I had a really chronic depression. So I was very overweight. And uh, he was like, I like skinny women. So, you know, because I would say to him, I'm like, you know, do you want a date? Would you like to go out on a date? I would ask him out. And he was like, no, you're too big for me. And I was like, but, you know, would you like to have some oral sex? He goes, sure. You know, so that was, you know, kind of how that started. Once again, a non-pseudo relationship. And so when I was there at Enron and, you know, we went bankrupt and they kept me on. And then I got him back. And so for uh, a period of like five years, I was like love addicted to this guy. And, um, you know, I just, you know, would bring him lunches every day because we worked in the same help desk. And so finally he left Enron and he went um, to go live in the country, the hill country. And, uh, you know, I was always planning to get him back. And so... I had bought a house here in Houston, and it was a two-bedroom house, and I had bought that house specifically because I knew it would be good for him and his dog, that he would be able to live there. Like, I didn't need that much room, but, you know, I was, like, thinking about him. So finally, he said he did want to move back to Houston and, you know, start looking for work, and I said, you know, I've totally got room. You can come stay with me. No worries. No worries. And uh, and I was, like, saying, but, you know, I can't mess around because I was really kind of, like, devoting myself to my Al-Anon program. And they were like, you know, I really tried to work this slaw program from an Al-Anon perspective, and it, it didn't work for me. But, you know, I was just, like, saying, you know, we can't mess around. And he was like, okay, that's your deal. I don't I, I don't mind. And so he came, and it was just like, for me, it was like a dream come true. And here here was my guy living with me. But it was like my family of origin, we had separate bedrooms and there was no sex going on. So to me, that was like what relationships look like. That was how, you know, they were supposed to feel and be. And I was like feeding him and, you know, helped him get his teeth fixed and his truck fixed and fatten him up and, you know, tell him how awesome he was And, you know, he told me, he said, I just want to let you know that I've started dating someone. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, he'd been on Match.com. And, you know, when he told me this, it was just like daggers in my heart. I was just like, what? And, uh, you know, he was like, yeah, I've met someone. And one of the conditions of him living there was that he was sober. He said, I wanted to get clean. But once again, I wasn't at, I didn't get clarity. He wanted to get clean so that he could pass a drug test. He didn't want to get clean for sobriety and recovery. And so I said, as long as you're staying here and you're not using, you know, we're fine. And so, you know, he was uh, dating this girl, and I was like saying, you know, why, why don't? I, I just thought that if he got clean and sober, he would finally see my light. He would finally love me how I wanted him to love me and that you know, we could live you know, uh, the rest of our li- lives together. And I said to him, I said, you know, what has she got that I don't have? He goes, I can have a beer with her. And so for those of you who are sober in this program and you come into sex and love addiction, for me, I was like, do I give up my sobriety for this guy? And so I remember there was one day where I was really going to act out with him, sexually. And I called one of my AA friends, and I was like saying, "I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna seduce him, and uh, you know, and I'm gonna, and I'm gonna drink with him." And she said, "If you do that, you're gonna lose everything. You're gonna lose your house, your car, your job. You're gonna lose your friends." you know this is you're you're going to lose everything over this guy. Is this guy worth everything? And she just put it to me in just like unequivocal terms and I'll never forget that conversation. And she said, "You leave that house right now." She goes, "You get in your car and you leave. I don't care where you go. You come to my house, you go to somebody else's house, you leave that house." And so I left that house and um I left I left that house and you know, I started having therapy again, and I started to see a, a great therapist, and he recommended SLAA, and I'm like, no, 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 I don't want to do SLAA, it's too, they're too hardcore, it's too crazy, you know, my addict doesn't want to do SLAA, because, you know, she knows it's real then, she knows that that's you know, the real deal, and so, uh, you know, I did Women Within, you know, I was trying to do all these other things, you know, go to Al-Anon, go to AA, and uh, I was in a lot of pain, and he said, I really think you need to go to SLAA, and that was in 2007, around December, so, you know, I said, okay, I'll go check it out, and I walked in to, and it was, you know, the church over on uh, St. John the Divine over on Westheimer, it was a Saturday morning meeting, and I'll never forget that, you know, Ava said, you know, that. This program is homicidal and suicidal. And I mean, I was like shaky going into this meeting. You know, I was never like that when I went to AA. I'm like, I'm done. No drugs and alcohol. I got it. But going to SLAA, you know, shaking, like, you know, going to that meeting and seeing that it was a big meeting. There's like 30 women in that room, all in a big circle. And, you know, I heard my story in different formats. You know, one woman named Donna, she said, hi, my name is Donna, and my higher power is a man named Bill. She said, Bill loves golfing. She goes, I love golfing now. I had to learn everything about golfing. And I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. I would hear my story like that. And so I just, I went to those meetings. I listened to those women. You know, I shared because I'd had that tradition of AA and Al-Anon. And, you know, for the first time in my life, I felt like, you know, an Al-Anon, I've loved it, and it's got a specific reason, but this is my core addiction. Sex and love addiction is it. Even when, you know, starting from a child being in love with my next door neighbor, Dale, you know, I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on the litany. So I continue, I started working the program. I got a sponsor. And one of the things that I came to realize that what I wanted to do, because that's what SLAA had me question. It's like, what do I want to do with my life? And I'd always had this secret desire to be an actor. And so I like helped manifest that. And this was, you know, while Troy, Mr. T was still living with me. And I was like, I've got to do something to keep my mind off this guy, because I wanted to get him out, but he wasn't out. And so I audition for a play, I got the play, and it was a little community theater play, and, um, you know, it was very absorbing, and it was just something that I needed to do in order to keep my mind off him, and so I was doing the play, and then it was as if God had just, like, waited for me to put down my burden. He started, you know, giving me all these roles and plays, and finally, through the help of the women in the program, I was able to convince this guy to move out because he was living in the lap of luxury, you know, I was doing everything for him, he didn't pay rent, you know, I was feeding him, taking care of his dog while he could go over his girlfriend's house, it was just, you know, I would iron shirts for him for his dates, it was just crazy, it was crazy, so finally I got him out, and I was working my program, and I probably had about a year, and I was in a play with a guy, and uh my sponsor and she and I had started working the steps and she went back out, she was an alcoholic and she started drinking again. And so I was like, Oh well, I, I kinda wanna date this guy that I'm in this play with. And so, you know, I kinda like left the program and started like, you know, again, this disease is, you know, progressive and it escalated. And so this little actor guy I fell in love with, I thought I fell in love with, I had no idea. I'd never, I didn't know if he had any siblings. I didn't know where he lived. I didn't know who his parents were. You know, I just knew I was in this play with him and I knew that I loved him. I was madly in love with him. And it was just a booty call situation. And it was just, you know, I mean, probably I was with him like maybe five or six times over a six month period, but I was just obsessed with him. And, you know, I wasn't going to meetings. I'd kind of dropped out. But I'd go to a few and, you know, that's when I kept hearing the message. And so I knew there was a solution. And I remember when I had been stalking him on Facebook and, you know, and it was clear that he was with this other girl, you know, seeing their little love notes back and forth to each other. And, uh, and I remember I was like, I can, I'm a 45 year old woman. I cannot be doing this stuff. This is ridiculous. And I remember, you know, thinking, I'm just, I'm done. And you know, when we become willing, <laughs> really willing, you know, there was a, something that just came over me. And my therapist was like, okay, here's what you gotta do. You gotta go into no contact. Here's what you say to him. And then, you know, cut off your phone or get a new phone number. And so I did that. And the hard thing about it was it was my work phone. So I had to go to this old gal that did the phones at my company and I just said to her, I need a new phone number. And she just kind of looked at me and she went, okay. You know, because sometimes we make up in our mind it's going to be, you know, something horrible. And it wasn't. It was like easy. I texted him, I can't have anything to do with you anymore. I can't explain, but, I, you know, please don't try to reach out to me or contact me, blah, blah, blah. And then I pulled, that was that time when you could pull out SIM cards. And I pulled out the SIM card and then that was it. And I felt different this time in the program. And I went in like with fresh eyes. Now my withdrawal from Mr. T was long and hard. I would have anxiety attacks. And, but this time when I went in through withdrawal, it was like I had the women in the program to really help me and support me. And so as a result of this program, you know, I've been able to, you know, I went to graduate school for acting in New York, you know, I got my master's degree, I spent six years in that city. Unfortunately, I did not stay connected to my SLAA program. But I did stay sober. And when I needed support, I would reach out to women. In 2016, I was sick of New York. If any of you guys have lived in New York, you you get it, you understand. And I missed my recovery community here in Houston. I missed my sponsor. I missed my recovery girlfriends. I have a brother here. I have other friends here. Houston's home for me. So I moved back in 2016 and, you know, some of my friendships, they weren't the same. You know, I've been here for 20 years, but my recovery community just opened their arms and just embraced me back into it. And thankfully my sponsor, Elizabeth, encouraged me to jump back into service. Just jump back in. And so I've been back in Houston for four years and continuing to work with her. And for me, what keeps me sober today is, you know, like someone was saying to me last night, like the five S's, you know, it's like so simple. And so I, you know, lead meetings, I sponsor, I am sponsored. And, you know, for me, it's like living my life one day at a time just gives me it's just it's just the way to be and like yesterday I was talking to Elizabeth you know I'm still continuing to feel poorly and you know it's like I get into catastrophic thinking and she's like just take it 24 hours at a time I'm like oh my god so you know that's my story you guys and all I can say is that you know this program has given me my life and this program has given me so much hope and for those of you out there who are struggling and don't think you can do it, you can, absolutely, absolutely you can. But, you know, it's about working the steps and following those suggestions. And if you can do that, then, you know, you're going to be happy, joyous, and free. That's that's the man And it's not like, yee happy. It's happy, joyous, free. And I am MG, and I'm a sex and love addict. That's it for this month's speaker meeting, Stay tuned to Sober Sisters Talk for next month's speaker. Thank you.